0: The not a Cast, podcast the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week i'm your host jeff better known as better be fish
1: and i'm your other host emmett better known as poor quentin
0: and welcome to the 89th episode of the not a Cast, titled hat trick an analysis of a clash of kings Tyrion 4 in which Tyrion's just gonna need you to sign this nda boilerplate really nothing to it he swears
1: would Tyrion lie to you i threw a sports reference in there for you jeff i thought that was like a like an olive branch, like a bone it's to like a catnip. dog. catnip, man. It was like catnip oh, for me. An yeah. even better comparison. But yeah, all these early Tyrion chapters obviously are glorious, but we were looking forward to this one. Maybe everyone doesn't enjoy the early Bran chapters in the Clash of Kings as much as we do, or the Team Dragonstone stuff, but I think we can all agree that Tyrion 4 is a masterpiece.
0: Am I right? Tyrion 4 is a total masterpiece. I mean, obviously, if you look at my name here on the livecast, Bran Greater Than Sign, Tyrion, so all the Mm -hmm. people who are saying that... Letting your freak flag fly, as always, sir. As as I always do here on the internet, on the online, on the youtube.com. Yes, so (laughs) Tyrion 4 is a great chapter. Of course, I prefer Bran Two to Tyrion 4, nothing wrong with Tyrion 4, but this chapter is absolutely great. But it's only overshadowed slightly by Brand 2, which is just awesome, 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 awesome.
1: Acceptable opinion.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach. Grand Maester Bob Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant, to the Hand of the King, Lady of Valyrian. Hedrigal, captain of the airship Arrakens, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sea Lord of Bravos. Kelly, one of the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli, Oli, Master of Cannoli, and our newest member of the small council, Sir Sorcedelica, who has been promoted from being a High Lord to a member of the Small Council. Thank you, Councilors, very much, and welcome to the Small Council, Sir Source
1: Welcome indeed, Sister Sorcedelica, and thank you very much, Counselors, as always, and well done, Jeff, with your pronunciations.
0: I, I you know, I'm, I'm putting things now phonetically here in the document. You guys can't see the document that I'm reading as I'm doing this, so I have to do it phonetically for some of these because I'm because I'm I, I can't read. I, I don't read because I can't read, sort of things. So that's, it's like
1: that's... a heartwarming. It's like an Oscar bait movie. <laughs> I can just see the trailer already. It's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. I like that.
0: So our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, will potentially be talking about all published books. There's five novels, three Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsmender sample chapters, as well. Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Lord James, the Jim who was promised, a small council patron, asks, What has watching the show and reading the books demonstrated to you about the relative power of the different media, and in B. case, listening to the books? For me, the visuals dominate despite multiple rereads. I'm curious on your take. Let's throw out Lord of the Rings and the Fever Dream graphic novel while we are at it. That's a terrific question and definitely something I think about a lot, especially in the wake of the show finishing. It's a question we're going to return to in terms of uh, this contents, uh, this chapter's contents itself near the end of the episode. But what do you think about that just in general, Jeff? What, do you, what is that, that balance between show and books? What, what, what do you think about that these days?
0: It's really hard for me to separate the two because when I'm reading Tyrion, I'm not seeing possibly the Tyrion that's on page. I'm seeing Peter Dinklage. When I'm reading Cersei Lannister in this chapter, I'm seeing Lena Headey. When I'm reading Braun, I'm not seeing the Braun character in there. I'm seeing Jerome Flynn. And that's not bad, I don't think. I mean, I, I, again, I'm, as many of you guys, most of you guys probably know at this point, I came to the books through the show. So I finished Seasons 1 and Seasons 2 before I started actually reading the books. And I think that was a good kind of gateway for me into this kind of fantasy series. And The Song of Ice and Fire has been a gateway for me into like other fantasy series as well. Uh, so I'm, I, you know, I, I know I'm kind of a little bit kind of a, kind of basic as, as the kids are saying these days, and that's okay to be basic. I tend to have a hard time seeing sometimes the way that George is putting different characters in as opposed to seeing what the show is. Now, for those characters that are not in the books, I have a much stronger sense of who they are and what they look like, and sometimes in my head, I don't know if you do this, man, but I sometimes in my head, like, for a character like John Connington, i'll like think of kevin mckid from rome the tv show rome hbo's rome as as the stand in my head for other characters i have different ideas as well about different people who might play the part so i've kind of had these fan casting ideas in my mind for characters that are in the books major characters in the books that are not necessarily in uh in the show but i, I think it's, it's it's fun and but i've, I've uh, yeah so i guess i have a harder time what about you man what do you think
1: It really varies. Certain characters, I think, are just- have just been mentally colonized for me by their show version stuff. Like Varus. Varus is Conleth Hill, and there's just nothing I can do about that. That's just permanently a state of affairs in my brain. And other characters are like in between, like Alfie Allen keeps shifting in and out of my mental picture of Theon because he does not remotely resemble Theon in the books, but he's also a really good actor who did a great job portraying Theon, so he's kind of emotionally there for me. And then you get like other sequences, like you know, The House of the Undying is an extremely visual sequence in terms of how it's written, but wasn't really translated one-to-one to the show, so where does that fit in? It varies all over the place. I just got the uh, the Clash of Kings Illustrated Edition. Oh, nice. Which has some wonderful, beautiful art in it, and that's already having an impact on how I think about those chapters as we're going through th- this book. It's It's constantly evolving, and I think... I'm, I'm interested that there are certain parts of the books that are obviously more cinematically designed than others, but those, those don't necessarily end up being the ones translated to the show. As I said, like House of the Undying, no, but the Blackwater, yes, very much so. Like when I read Davos' third chapter in the Clash of Kings now, the, 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 the wildfire chapter, I think about Liam Cunningham on the deck of his boat mm-hmm. getting blown apart into that, you know, fire green and then Tyrion reacting and Stannis reacting. That's what I think about. So it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. And I think that's, it's going to continue changing as, as we, go through the books and again you get an illustrated edition you get different fan art here. That's something I'm glad is never static is is the I think the visual relationship to the books.
0: Yeah, I agree there. The question was also asked by Lord James Gippo's promise about Lord of the Rings and the Fever Dream and the Fever Grim, <laughs> By the in the Fever Dream novel. Um for me I I mostly see Fever Dream in, in the same way uh, that I don't that I've I've read the the novel now the graphic novel but I do uh, mostly see it in my own head just cuz I actually read the books before I actually read the graphic novel and then for Lord of the Rings I absolutely see all the characters as you know all the actors that we saw in the 2001 2002 2003 films sorry J.R. Tolkien that's just how it is
1: yeah those are interesting questions for me of style because yeah a lot of the actors in Lord of the Rings I picture now when I read the books like Sean Bean as Boromir for example all the hobbits definitely but there's this like you know the sweeping horn-led grandeur of, of Jackson's take well which I love on its own merits uh Lord of the Rings still feels very kind of small and handmade even on an epic scale to me hmm. just in terms of how the prose works and how it's described. And there were certain moments that were cinematic like I'll never forget the lightning clap that reveals the white hand of Saruman on the army of Orcs as it marches mm-hmm. on Helm's Deep in the book of the Two Towers and I feel like Jackson took that moment and made it like the core the aesthetic cornerstone for the entire battle sequence which is a great adaptational decision but the rest of the battle doesn't really look like that. And that's for me. That's that kind of tone is sort of, still sort of the appeal for Lord of the Rings. So, uh, not, not not a lot of the visuals have translated for me. Fever Dream. It feels very yeah like New Orleans-y and very kind of noirish to me, or something like Boardwalk Empire. Like that's the kind of vibe I tend to get off of it visually. And, and the, the the graphic novel for me just kind of underlined that. I didn't really contradict it. So. Thank you to Lord James, the Jim who was promised, for the question. And if you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to subscribe as a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F.
0: And speaking of our Patreon, our next Patreon-only episode, our full out analysis of the Greyjoy Rebellion with thematic analysis of Ironborn culture, the short, stupid history of history's greatest dumb dumb Lord Reaper of Bale Balon Greyjoy, lots and <laughs> lots of Emmett's Euron analysis and me getting into my shit feels about all the battles from the Greyjoy Rebellion is coming everyone's way on Thanksgiving week. Just to give you guys a little bit of a better idea of our release schedule, it'll be out for our small counselors on Monday, November 25th. High Lords and Ladies and Kingsguard on Tuesday, November 26th, Sworn Swords on Wednesday, November 27th, and Poor Fellows on the Greatest American Holiday, Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, November 28th. But, enough about Patreon, on to Tyrion 4. When we last checked in with the protagonist of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion Lannister had just started a great chain and chilled with Var's and Tywin Lannister's tunnel. Let's see what type of awesome shit Tyrion Lannister gets into in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 4. Grand Maester Pythel apologized to Tyrion for the early morning meeting, but you see, he's an old idiot, and he'd rather be up and about than lying in bed feeling anxious about who he'll betray next. Breakfast is abroad, brought, and Picel states that it's plain because of all the starvation going on in the city. Tyrion thinks this is commendable, as he takes a bite of egg, but Tyrion's view is a more epicurean one. If there is food, I eat it, in case there is not on the morrow. Tyrion then asks if the ravens get up early, and Pycelle says they do, but why ask? Does Tyrion want Pycelle to write a message to send somewhere maybe? Tyrion says, nah, he's already got it covered, but they need to talk in private all the same. So Pycelle dismisses his servant, and Tyrion informs Pycelle that he has two copies of an urgent letter for Prince Doran Martell, and I need Pycelle's fastest birds to to fly to Doran to deliver the message. Tyrion hands Pycelle the paper and asks him to hustle his ass up and go send the bird to Doran. The Grand Maester shuffles off slowly with the messages and Tyrion notices that the Grand Maester's chain doesn't have many of the common metals. Instead, it's all blinged out with gemstones, silver, gold, and platinum. Picel ends up walking so slow that Tyrion is able to finish his entire breakfast with all of the free time. Tyrion then can take a little old peek at the maze of shelves that Pycelle has as base chambers with all that, again, free time. He sees hundreds of vials, milk glass bottles, jars, all well-labeled. He spies a couple of medicines slash poisons and he grabs one, little bottle off the shelf, smiles and slips it in his sleeve. When Pycelle returns from um, totally delivering the messages, the Grand Master tries to pry out what was in the messages, but Tyrion's not about to tell Grand Master anything. Well, will maybe Tyrion tell the small council? No, he's not going to do that either. The small council merely advises the king. Also note, Tyrion won't be telling Cersei too. She's just so burdened by having to rule and do all that kind of queen regency shit. Ah, the old man muttered to his plums. Doubtless you have the right of it, my lord. It is most considerate of you to spare her this burden. That's just the sort of fellow I am. Consider it. Pycelle drones on about how Cersei is frail because she's a lady, and Tyrion's like, uh, yeah, sure, sure, my dude. So, so frail. But Tyrion must be going, you see, and if you get any message back from Doran Martell, be sure not to inform anyone but Tyrion, okay? Pycelle, remember, Pycelle, don't tell anyone but me. The Grandmaster says, of course, he will only tell Tyrion. One, Tyrion thought. Tyrion walks out to the lower bailey of the Red Keep and meets up with a Bron, who is observing some knights and men at arms training with blunted weapons. When Bron doesn't even notice some of the hot serving girls passing by, Tyrion teases Bronn about being too intent on fighting which leads Bronn to say he'll go purchase a sex worker for a copper if he wants to. Bit of a paraphrase there, but one day my life may hang on how close I've watched your louts. You see Bronn's still training people to fight on Tyrion's behalf and he's most impressed by this kid named Sir Talad, a hedge knight. The problem is that Talad fights with a rhythm, and that's going to end up getting the knight killed one day down the road, especially if Talad ends up fighting Bronn. They head off across the bailey with Bronn looking hashtag dank, as the kids say, and Tyrion feeling small and weird, as he kind of often does. Tyrion asks how many people have come to bake his audience, and Bronn says, 30 dude, enjoy that. And to keep us on a brisker pace for the synopsis, let's bullet point who everyone is and what they want from Tyrion. Lady Tanna Stokeworth wants to have dinner with Tyrion in order to persuade Tyrion to wed her, quote, slow-witted daughter Lolly's lovely... Tyrion declines. Two, a money lender from Bravos wants to get repayment on a loan. Tyrion sends him on to Littlefinger. Three, a Rivaler come down to swear his to Joffrey and ask for more peasants after Lannister War Criminals killed all of his. Tyrion will see him tomorrow. Four, Bakers, butchers, and greengrocers demand that Tyrion provide them pre- protection after a baker was killed by a mob, which included <laughs> Gold Cloaks. Awesome. Tyrion sends them away with his regrets. Five, and finally, Sir Alistair Thorne has arrived in King's Landing bearing a rotten hand in a jar. Tyrion, who doesn't like that piece of motherfucking shit, Sir Alistair says to put him up in the worst room of the Red Keep and he won't see him anytime soon. In the outer yard, Tyrion encounters Cersei who seems none too pleased to see her brother. Still Tyrion thinks Cersei looks hot this morning, which yeah man, those lasers are so fucked up like a football bat when it comes to their sibling relationships. She's there with two Kingsguard knights as well as Giles Rosby, Halley and the Pyromancer and Lancel Lannister, her cousin and new favorite who'd been recently promoted to knighthood. Tyrion asks where everyone's off to and Cersei says that she's going to inspect the scorpions and spitfires on the walls because she's very keen on seeing the city defended, unlike Tyrion. She states that Renly's on the march from Highgarden, moving up the King's Road and Tyrion's like, yeah, Varys told me that too. Still Tyrion's not all that concerned about Renly. Sure he's got a massive army, but he you know, he could end up meeting Tywin or Robb Stark in battle and he's not going to be arriving anytime soon. Rye Tyrion says, I would do much as he is doing. Make my progress, flaunt my power for the rum to see, watch, wait. Let my rivals contend while I bide my own sweet time. If Stark defeats us, well, the south will fall into Renly's hand like a windfall from the gods, and he'll not have lost a man. And if it goes the other way, he can descend on us while we're weakened. Cersei ain't happy about this since she has a point about that. She demands that Tyrion demand that Tywin come back from Harrenhal. But Tyrion knows that's fucking stupid. Besides, Tywin wouldn't listen to Tyrion or Cersei. But Cersei wants to know how and when Tyrion is going to free Jaime since he's worth 100 Tyrians. Which leads to Tyrion deflecting that question for a future subplot in Clash of Kings. This then leads to Cersei thankfully riding away with her entourage chasing after her. With Cersei gone, Tyrion thinks about Renly, and strangely, Tyrion thinks Renly isn't the greatest threat. He's young and green, having never seen battle. The greater concern is status! Stat- I'm sorry, I always do that. Hell yeah. But Tyrion has no idea what Stannis is doing on Dragonstone. None of the spies that Tyrion had sent to Dragonstone returned, and Varus' little birds and Stannis' court had grown strangely silent too. But there had been sightings of Lysene war galleys off the coast, and there was word of cell sails gathering with Stannis on Dragonstone. If Stannis attacks by sea while his brother Renly storms the gates, they'll soon be mounting Joffrey's head on Spike. Worse, mine will be beside him. Tyrion thinks this is a distressing thought and he'll work to get Shae out of the city if it comes to that. But. Back at the solar, Tyrion runs into Podrick Payne, who, who stares at the ground when talking with Tyrion, telling the hand of the king that Littlefinger is in his chambers. After teasing the boy a bit, Tyrion walks in and finds Lord Peter sauce is gonna get you, you motherfucking sucker, Baelish sitting at the window seat, watching Joffrey attempt to do some small animal murder for sport, because of course, Littlefinger states that Joffrey is terrible at doing murder on small animals, and invites Tyrion to watch with him, and the two observe Joffrey missing hairs over and over again with crossbow bolts. Littlefinger tells Potter that he should invest in pots, as the castle will soon be overgrown with rabbits. In the the coming months due to all the ones that are evading joffrey's crossbow bolts Tyrion asks if Padre can get littlefinger some refreshment but littlefinger says no drink with the dwarf it said and you wake up walking on the wall have no fear my lord Tyrion thought it's not the wall i have in mind for you Tyrion compliments to littlefinger looking elegant today but the master of coin fakes having his feelings hurt saying that he should look elegant every day and then Tyrion makes a rapid shift in the conversation well that's a handsome knife as well is it there is mischief in littlefinger's eyes he drew the knife and glanced at it casually, if he had never seen it before. Valerian steel and a dragonbone hilt. A trifle plain, though. It's yours if you would like it. Mine? Tyrion gave him a long look. No, I think not. Never mind. He knows the insolent wrench. He knows and he knows that I know, and he thinks that I can't touch him. The problem is that it's not just that Littlefinger thinks Tyrion can't touch him. Tyrion himself thinks that, as he explains in Littlefinger's post-Stelley backstory. If ever a man was truly armored in gold, it was Peter Baelish, not Jaime Lannister. Jaime's famous armor was but gilded steel, but Littlefinger, ah. Tyrion had learned a quite a few things about sweet Peter and to his growing disquiet. Ten years ago, John Arryn had given him a minor sinecure in customs, where Lord Peter had soon distinguished himself by bringing in three times as much as any of the king's other collectors. King Robert had been a prodigious spender. A man like Peter Baelish, who had a gift for rubbing two dragons together, to be a third was invaluable to his hand. Littlefinger's rise had been arrow swift. Within three years of his coming to the court, he was master of coin and a member of the small council. And today, the crown's revenues were ten times what they had been under his beleaguered predecessor, though the crown's debts had grown vast as well. A master juggler was Peter Baelish. So wait, if they're bringing in so much cash, why is the realm in such obscene debt, this fiscal conservative wants to know. Hmm. And Tyrion's investigations of the present show Littlefinger working to enhance the crown's finances, cleverly investing the crown's gold in textiles, grain, ships, etc., and he put his own men into government jobs. The keeper of the keys were all his, all four. The king's counter and the king's scales were men he'd named. The officers in charge of all three mints harbor masters, tax farmers, custom sergeants, wool factors, toll collectors, pursers, wine factors nine of every ten belonged to Littlefinger. They were men of middling birth, by and large merchant sons, lesser lordlings, sometimes even foreigners. But judging from the results, far more able than their highborn predecessors. Still, Littlefinger seems so harmless. He had no major lords for patrons, no armies, no holdings, no prospects for a great marriage. And Tyrion thinks he can't touch him, even if he is a traitor. Like, Tyrion, come on, man, you absolutely can touch him. (sighs) <sighs> Regardless, Tyrion thinks he'll maybe take the moderate move and remove some of Littlefinger's dudes and replace them with his own men. But Tyrion's thoughts are interrupted by Littlefinger commenting that Geoffrey finally killed one of the hares. Tyrion takes that opportunity to get to business. He asks how close Littlefinger is to the daughters of Hustle, and Littlefinger's all like, super fucking close, emphasis on the fucking. He totally super banged both Tully sisters like the hot dick that he is. Tyrion thinks that Littlefinger is lying about banging Catelyn, but maybe Catelyn was lying? No, Tyrion, wrong. Catelyn is pure. She would never, ever lie. All the same, Tyrion knows that Catlin and Lysa don't love him, so he wants Littlefinger, who was so close to the Tully sisters, to pass on a proposal on his behalf. He tells Littlefinger that he wants Lysa to be brought back into the King's peace. In exchange for that, he'll tell Lysa who John Arryn's true killer is. Littlefinger is suddenly feeling his pits going extremely, extremely moist, gets all fidgety. Oh, oh, oh well, who could that possibly be? Who is John Arryn's true killer? But Tyrion's not going to tell Littlefinger that. He needs Lysa's friendship and her swords first. Littlefinger reports that Lysa's got worries of her own. All those mountain clans, they're they're raiding in force and with good weapons. Distressing, Tyrion said, who had armed them. But maybe Tyrion could help in exchange for Lysa's swearing to Joffrey. And Littlefinger cuts in is like, yeah, I know what you're about to say, and there's no fucking way Lysa's going to march against Riverrun. But that's not what Tyrion means. He'd rather have Lysa helping out against Stannis and Renly, and then she'll get Jon Arryn's killer and relief from the mountain clansmen. Hell, Tyrion will even throw in having Sweet Robin named Warden of the East. Okay, fine. He'll also marry sweet Robin to Marcella too. There. What a bargain. Littlefinger is surprised by this. Does does Cersei know? Does the Queen know? Tyrion shrugs, grinning, and Littlefinger laughs and says that Tyrion is a dangerous dude. Maybe he'll do this for Tyrion, but, but what's his reward? Harrenhal. It was interesting to watch Littlefinger's face. Lord Peter's father had been the smallest of small lords. His grandfather, a landless hedge knight. Harrenhal was one of the richest plums of the Seven Kingdoms, its lands broad and rich and fertile, its great castle as formidable as any in the realm, and so large as the Dwarf River Run, where Peter Baelish had been fostered by Hoster Tully, only to be brusquely expelled when he dared raise his sights to Lord Hoster's daughter. Littlefinger pretends to be bored, saying that Harrenhal is cursed, but Tyrion's like, well, just, you know, fucking destroy it and repair it. You'll have the cash for that, and you also have the fealty of the River Lords, after all, even the Tullys. Littlefinger looked like a boy who had taken a furtive bite from a honeycomb. He was trying to watch for bees. The honey was so so sweet littlefinger tries to express skepticism asking why tyrion would make littlefinger the greatest lord of westeros well because littlefinger serves so well in the quote matter of succession ah but janos slint also quote served well too yeah yeah but Tyrion didn't need janos slint he needs lysa and he'd rather peter have Heron hall than renly have the iron throne billish says he'll have to go to the sex with Lysa again but then he gives that wonderful line you guys remember this line from game of thrones it's, it's a good one I once told Ned Stark that when you find yourself naked with an ugly woman, the only thing to do is to close your eyes and get on with it." Love that fucking line. Fuck you, Littlefinger. Littlefinger seems to make up his mind and asks for Fortnite to finish up things in King's Landing before he sails for Gulltown. He'll get, he gets up to depart, thinking that this has been such a wonderful morning, profitable even. He bows and leaves. Two, Tyrion thinks. Tyrion heads up to the bedchamber to wait Varys and thinks the eunuch better hustle his powdered ass up as he wants to see Shade night. So when Varys shows up an hour later, Tyrion is pleasantly surprised that the eunuch has arrived early. As soon as Varys walks in, he jokes around with Tyrion, saying that it was cruel not to tell Paisel what was in the letter he dispatched. Tyrion says that it's ironic for you to say that, Varys, but you want to hear what my message to Dorm was all about? Well no need, Varys already knows from his little birds. Doran Martellus calls banners, but he hasn't done anything else. Maybe he'll join me up with Renly, and Tyrion will want to prevent that, Varys says with the confidence of like a CNN analysis or some shit. Tyrion's like, duh, dude, duh. So Varys wonders what Tyrion offered Doran Martell, given that the Prince of Dorne still mourns for his sister Elia. Ah, well Tyrion has offered up the empty small council seat, so recently vacated by Janus, Ed, fetch me a fucking block, Slint. Varys wonders if that'll be enough to bring the Dorans to heal, but Tyrion's had another notion for that. He's going to give Doran Martell his sister Elia's killers, alive or dead after the war. This piques Varus' interest, the Master of Whisperers knows who it was that killed Elia, and Tyrion knows too. It was an open secret at Castle Rock that Gregor Clegane was the, was the culprit. And even though Gregor is Tywin's man, Tywin will so totally make the rational call and exchange Gregor for 50,000 Doran Spears. Varus considers this and muses that Doran may want the blood of the lord who gave the command. What about that? Robert Baratheon led the rebellion. All commands came from him in the end. Robert was not a king's landing, Varus says. Neither was Doran Martell, Tyrion replies. Varys says, huh, so you're going to give blood and a council seat for the Dornish to join up with the Lannisters, but will Dorn Martell take you up on the offer? He might want more, maybe a token of good faith? Tyrion sighed, you know, don't you? Since you put it that way, yes, Tommen, you could scarcely offer Marcella to Dorn and Lysa Aaron both. Tyrion, doing some great acting here, says that he's irritated that Varys cheats at these games. He wants to get Tommen away from Cersei and Joffrey. He's a good boy, and he can grow to be a good man if he gets away from them, Tyrion says. Maybe even a good king? Varus, is kind of like, hey, good king? Is that kind of something we want to be interested in? But Tyrion's not there yet. Joffrey is still the king to him. But Varys knows Tommen is the heir, and he's so very sweet and tractable. Problem, as Varys points out, is that Cersei won't want to part with Tommen and Marcella. Tyrion can't send both away. Ah, but Cersei can't know, and that's why you can't tell her, Varys. And if Varys does tell Cersei, why, Tyrion will know Varys to be his worst enemy. And when Varys giggled, Tyrion thought, three. And that is a clash of kings Tyrion IV. C- call me crazy, uh, but you know, last week's chapter on Bran Two is full of wholesome good-faith but still, you know, hard-nosed northern politics, but Lord's jostling for position and power. But ultimately, everyone's kind of working together, save for those motherfucking Boltons. There's a kind of level of trust here, but no, not, not, not in Tyrion 4. Like, this is gangster land, man, and you've got to be a gangster to get out of here alive. So, you being the gangster movie fanatic, what did you think of this chapter, Emmett?
1: Well, all these early Tyrion chapters are great, but this is the best of the best. Tyrion Four is, is, is the Led Zeppelin Four, if you will, where all the elements from the previous chapters coalesce perfectly and attain new heights of political intrigue and intricate plotting. We could spend hours just praising the structure of it, mm-hmm. as George keeps his dancing with specifics throughout the chapter before pulling the rug out at the very end with the reveal of what Tyrion's been up to all along. But every detail along the way is notable in its own right, which is what allows this chapter to hold up so well on reread. It's not just the gotcha at the end, it's the context around that gotcha, and the density is the key to making that context work. And the, the accumulation of details at a take no prisoner's momentum is, yeah, what keeps me coming back to Scorsese's gangster pictures as the reference point here, including now the Irishman, which if you haven't seen, you, you definitely should, when it comes to Netflix, at least, cause it's just like three and a half hours of men standing in shadowy corners, mumbling things <laughs> like, duh, it is what it is. And he told me to tell you the thing, or there's one line that I always get wrong. I try to say it, say it precisely. It's a, you you might be demonstrating a failure to demonstrate respect or something just beautifully, mm-hmm. one of those beautiful self-negating gangster lines that doesn't mean anything except, I'm going to kill you dressed up in pretty language. And that's what I love about these Tyrion chapters. And this approach is, is common to most of the art I love in general though, it's both overflowing with details and hurtling ahead at light speed.
0: Right. I mean, that level of granularity in Tyrion's chapters is what makes them fun reads, right? I mean, it's it's fun to be like that in-depth about stuff, but it's also makes them places where we need to not let our eyes kind of glaze over the text. You know, George's planning C's for larger plot movements with small mentions. In Tyrion 2, we saw with Varus doing the listicle of small matters. the Redwine Twins. They might flee if we don't arrest the person who's attempted to aid them. And in Tyrion 4, we have Bronn fulfilling the same role, listing off seemingly small matters. That are actually gonna pay off in big time down the road. And that's kind of George's skill as a writer at work. There are no unimportant matters here. You know, I was watching Watchmen last night, and there's a mention of a of a device. I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it, and this kind of long conversation that one of the characters has on the phone with a s with a salesperson person to possibly repair this device. And you think that's unimportant, but it's not unimportant, in the same way it kind of works for George in The Clash of Kings and in Tyrion's chapter specifically. There are no unimportant matters. All of these small issues, these small things that are brought up that Braun brings up, they become either fully imagined plot points down the road in A Clash of Kings, or they kind of work as seedlings for George to garden into full-blown future plot points. Plot points which, you know, they're not actually going to sprout up into full grown gardens until later books, Feast for Crows, A Dance with Dragons. You know, it's similar to Bran 2 from last week and how George has seeds future story points that won't manifest themselves until A Dance with Dragons, even the Winds of Winter. But those aren't the only parallels between Tyrion and Bran in this chapter.
1: Yes, it's wild coming to Tyrion 4 right after Bran 2 because they have so much in common in terms of structure but they are so different in terms of the POV character arc at play. In both cases, George is taking us through a series of political figures, each with their own angle on the ever-shifting power plays of Westeros at war. Bran talks with Lord Wyman, Lady Hornwood, the Umber Uncles, etc. And Tyrion talks with Pycelle, Littlefinger Varys, etc. And in both cases, we have this fledgling regime, the Stark and the Lannisters, trying to hold on to its legitimacy and secure needed allies, while also determining who is and who isn't trustworthy. But while Bran is, you know, a good boy, a good lad, struggling to reshape his identity in a complex, hostile world, Tyrion is a much more ambiguous figure, working to just stay atop said complex, hostile world. Bran has on his side Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin, who are well-intentioned patriots who love him, even though, as we said with Steven, their decisions aren't always the best. Tyrion has on his side Braun, a merciless killer, <laughs> and Podrick Payne, who can't even meet his gaze... And like even in terms of family relations, like Rickon may aggravate Bran a little bit in these class chapters, but he is nowhere near as much trouble as Cersei (laughs) is for Tyrion. But of course, the primary difference is the age of our POVs and how that determines their level of engagement with all the political maneuvering around them. Bran is just starting out, and so we see Winterfell politics through the eyes of someone longing for his childhood dreams to be restored instead. Someone with one eye always drifting out the window, you know what I mean? And Tyrion... He hasn't had anywhere near this much power before but he is old enough to have read quite a bit and presumably observed players at work, especially his father. So this is his dream. Reading people like his favorite books and and moving them around on the board, proving he can master the society that has rejected him all his life. And while Bran, like Lewin and Roderick, is locked into a reactive mode of thinking, Tyrion is on the offense. He's weaponizing intelligence. He's using his pawn's strengths and weaknesses against them instead of just taking in the information. So if Bran's chapters filter the politics through coming-of-age tropes, Tyrion's chapters at their best burn right through Robert Caro to, to John <laughs> le Carré. And he put these like political notions in a kind of spy, noir, heightened emotional context like in this chapter, all in service of George showing us how adults handle political power.
0: Yeah, you, you make a great point, And I think – like. Last week, we were emphasizing how George is like dispelling this notion of the North is like this pristine, amazing place where everybody works together for the common good of the realm. When that's actually not the case, right? We've got actual hard elbowed politics that are happening in the North, too. But, you know, I, I do have to say, though, when we flash back to King's Landing, the very next chapter after Brand 2, we do get this I'm going to say a strong sense of a different type of political game being played here. And while it's worth emphasizing that the playing of the Game of Thrones and King's Landing b- requires a degree of cunning and deception and mistrust that Winterfell doesn't at least, you know, automatically require, it's more than just the locations and even the histories and the cultures at work and why the game feels different. You know, it comes down to, I want to say, Bran and Tyrion's individual point of views on, on the Game of Thrones. You know, in Bran 2, we've got Bran saying, Bran thinking rather, that he had never asked to be a prince. It was knighthood he had always dreamed of. Bright armor and streaming banners, lance and sword, a warhorse between his legs. Why must he waste his days listening to old men speak of things he only half understood? Because you're broken, a voice inside reminded him. A lord on his cushioned chair might be crippled. The walters said their grandfather was so feeble that he had to be carried everywhere in a litter, but not a knight on a destrier. Besides, it was his duty. You are your brother's heir, and the Stark in Winterfell, Sir Roderick had said, reminding him of how Rob used to sit with their lord father when his battermen came to see him. So that's Bran's perspective. Let's look at Tyrion from a later Tyrion chapter. It is real, all of it, he thought. The wars. The intrigues. The great bloody game and me at the center of it. Me the dwarf. The monster. The one they scorned and laughed at. But now I hold it all. The power. The city. The girl. This is what I was made for. And gods forgive me. But I do love it." You know, we, we need to consider like why these two are playing the Game of Thrones. You know, Brian is bored by the game, but he views his role as the Prince of Winterfell in Stark terms. It's his duty while Tyrion loves game for its own sake and how it compensates for his physical disability, making him feel powerful and loved and respected, which is a major component of being a Lannister, right? You've got characters from Tywin who are reacting totally against his father Titus. You've got Cersei who's reacting against Tywin as well and compensating for different things that she is feeling inadequate as a result, mostly her sex and gender. So these these are aspects about Tyrion and Bran, why we're looking at these two characters, and why I think that George, as we were saying in the pre-episode, placed them in these two chapters in conjunction with each other.
1: It's so sad because with Tyrion, he's more sympathetic in this regard than I think the other members of his family because the treatment he's taken has been more constant than, I guess, more sympathetic than Tywin. I think Cersei is sympathetic to a certain degree in this regard too in terms of the way they've been treated by society. But you also see Bran dealing with a lot of similar issues and he comes out of it in a much better place. And I think you can see George trying to balance sympathy for these characters in terms of the position they've been put in, the the hunger that's been inculcated in them, the drive to do better than their predecessors and belong in their family. But also pay attention to the damage they do along the way because, you know, the people who get stomped under Tyrion or Cersei's boots, what about their arcs? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what about their conflicts and their family histories? Don't they matter just as much? And what right do the Lannisters have to just you know, take out their emotional issues on the landscape, as we've said before. And I think that's, as you say, I think George is working on different perspectives on that with Tyrion and Cersei and Tywin. But I think it's also worth noting that, like, compared to Jamie, like, if Jamie at this point, well, not this point, because he's in jail, but pr- prior to being imprisoned <laughs> by Rob. If Jamie wanted to just desert the Lannister cause because of how kind of noxious it was, he could just run off and be a sellsword like Robert dreams sure. of doing. That's not exactly an easy route to take, but it's a possible route, and it's one that Tyrion really doesn't have. As, as he says, and as Tywin has made known to him, the life outside of the, being a Lannister of Casterly Rock is kind of an abyss for him, and we see that unfold over the course of A Dance with Dragons. So Tyrion does have fewer options, but it doesn't change the fact that George is showing us some, some much baser motivations going into his power.
0: Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, like Jamie comes out of it with the best perspective when we get him to his swarm of Swords, but it's still hugely problematic given the, all of the stuff that Jamie gets into, both in his backstory as well as, you know, of course, pushing Bran out of the window at the start of a, the start of a Game of Thrones. <laughs> kind of bad, I know. Controversial, a controversial opinion as that is, but I think, like you know, when we we look at all these different Lannisters and look at the way that they're interacting with politics, we do have Tyrion who's occupying a a smarter role. He kind of has the reputation for being the smarter Lannister. And we do see that on early display in this chapter, in our very first interaction that we have between Tyrion and the three possible. Are they possible? Or are they actual fucking traitors in the small council with (sighs) Grand Maester motherfucking Pycelle?
1: Indeed. So we get into the meat of the chapter, the, the three standoffs, the three showdowns with the members of the small council, and we begin appropriately on the bottom. With the least impressive member of the small council now that Tyrion has gotten rid of Jeno's slint. And you see that every turn in this scene because Tyrion just sees right through Pycelle the same way Ned did but even more so. Manipulating him with such ease that he's like his internal monologue keeps drifting throughout the scene like he's thinking about the food and like the weather, it's just like, oh, those plums I would have cooked, you know, those were watery and overcooked. He's not even focusing on what he's doing because it's so easy, because Pycelle is not a challenge. Whereas with Littlefinger and Varys, his internal monologue stays focused on them, on what he's doing. And while he does also make fun of them, as he does of Pycelle because he's Tyrion, <laughs> he also re- he also expresses a reluctant respect for their abilities. He acknowledges in the privacy of his own head, okay, Littlefinger is good at armoring himself in his, his bookkeeping. Varys is good with his spies. He has no respect for Pycelle. That's not the case here. Tyrion has pure contempt for this man. And is enjoying fucking with him and just on that basis alone. And we were talking about the family dynamics with the Lannisters. And given who Pycelle is really loyal to here, I wonder if part of Tyrion's contempt for Pycelle is that Tyrion knows that Pycelle is Tywin's toady and just worships him in just like a, a horrible snail kind of way. And wonder if he's just kind of subconsciously passing on his hatred for his father here. What do you think about that?
0: I, too... I totally see that as, as the case that Tyrion is projecting his own hatred on his father. At the same time Pycelle is totally loathsome as a character. There's not a single scene with Pycelle where I'm like, Wow, Pycelle makes great points. Until we get to A Feast for Crows, of course, when he is in uh, Cersei's Small Council. And as we said before, he's the smartest member of Cersei's Small Council. Showing how far the Small Council has fallen by the time we get to A Feast for Crows. You know, if, if Tyrion is Tywin writ small as he declares himself at the end of A Storm of Swords, maybe this is how Tywin views Pycelle too? Oh, oh, sure, yeah. Pycelle is a total lancer, totally. He counseled Ares to open the gates to Tywin as he's going to reveal later in A Clash of Kings. And, you know, he helped bring, he helps Cersei bring Ned Stark down, all the different, and he does other things up behalf of the land. But you know, you ever get the sense of Tywin is exceptionally fond of Pycelle? He sarcastically derides him as the venerable Grand Maester back in Tyrion's final chapter in A Game of Thrones. And he otherwise acts like Pycelle is a nuisance in the spots that they're actually together in the Storm of Swords. So the, the idea that Tyrion is projecting this hatred of his father onto Pycelle works really well, but it's also you could also have another aspect of hatred, another avenue for Tyrion to have hatred before Pycelle, as this guy that Tywin himself looks at and is like, I can't stand this I guess he's like sort of important to my cause, but at the same time, he fucking sucks. Every single time I'm with this guy, he just bores me to tears and provides nothing of value to me in the small council.
1: Because he's such a kiss-ass, and that's really unpleasant. It's really unctuous and unpleasant, even for someone with as inflated a self-image as Tywin Lannister. I just think of the line from a from Millhouse and The Simpsons, and he's thinking to himself about Lisa. Once she sees you'll do anything she asks, she's sure to respect you. (laughs) It's like, that's Pycelle. Like, of course, he never, you know, has his own... just identity and his own bearing. He's always just thinking about, how will the words escaping my mouth please the Lannister? And that's just, even if you're the Lannister, that's just... that's just obnoxious to be around. And that's why it's fun for us to read this scene. That's why it's fun to watch Tyrion puncture Pycelle to mock his hypocrisy, his shallow sentiments, the utter transparency of his desire to get access to privileged information. <laughs> He's bad at hiding his own desires, which is a problem. Of course, you know, all that also reveals how cynical that, that Tyrion is. Like when Pycelle does his Pycelle sentiment, oh, people are starving outside, so I should keep my table, you know, my table simple. And Tyrion says, eh, I eat what we got, because who knows what we have on the morrow. <laughs> that's that's Tyrion's mindset at this point. And while that's, of course, Tyrion cracking a joke, it's also like, wow. That's that's bad if the guy in charge is cracking that kind of joke, you know what I mean? Like this entire chapter takes place in the context of the Lannister regime's fragility that Tyrion is desperately trying to shore up. Dealing with the possibility that is this is all going to collapse around their ears very soon. Like, you know, Tyrion specifically doesn't even let Pycelle finish his breakfast, which is a power play, of course, but it's also just to communicate the urgency, like he specifically hurries Pycelle away from his table, With the specter of Stannis and Renly. And they keep popping up. If you notice on reread. They they haunt this chapter. Everyone's Mm -hmm. talking about them. Because they are just ready to crash down on the Lannister crew. One or the other. And Pycelle pushes back on Tyrion. Specifically in the name of Cersei and Joffrey. Just to say, oh, you know, the, the, the king has the ultimate power. Cersei is the regent. Uh, but Tyrion uh, deftly dodges him with a definition of power that conveniently puts him in charge. First he says, oh, the, c- the council is subordinate to the king. And then Pycelle says, says, okay, so what about the king? What about Joffrey? And, jo- and then Tyrion says, oh, well, but Joffrey's a kid. So really he's subordinate to me, his hand. Which is an interesting construction. Like like any good politician, Tyrion is presenting his definition of power as the natural conception of power, right? Common sense. I'm in charge. But power is a shadow on a, on a wall. Power is where you believe it resides. Power always has multiple definitions, and you could easily reach a different definition here, the one that Pycelle is going for, where Cersei is in charge as the regent. And that's why Tyrion has to be an effective LBJ-ish politician in the moment. He has to bowl right over Pycelle. He's, he doesn't even let Pycelle finish a sentence for most of this scene, and that's on purpose. And, and then he like, gives him a blast of the old mismatched eyes, which he says, you know, always he uses to intimidate people. And it works on Pycelle, you know, at least for the moment, to get him through the scene. To get Pycelle—he's he, he's not even trying to get Pycelle to be loyal so much as get to get Pycelle to perform loyalty so then Tyrion can catch him in betrayal. You know what I mean? He's trying to get Pycelle to play along just enough. So he takes advantage of Pycelle's mis- misogyny while internally disagreeing that Cersei is a, quote, <laughs> frail dove. You see that also with, with Catelyn back in Book 1 when Rickard Karstark claims that women are the gentler sex and then Catelyn brings up Cersei as the counterexample. And uh, we get a lot of so, so character information, great little lines. We're not getting much plot-wise from this one as compared to the other conversations with Littlefinger and Varus. All we learn from this is that Tyrion is sending some kind of message to the Martells. And we don't learn the details, of course, because this is the real one. <laughs> so we'll learn the details later. George can afford to hold us off on that because, you know, that's going to become an actual plot line. But Tyrion also has to keep the details secret because he specifically needs to know if Pycelle is reading the messages. Right? Like, he, 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 you know, if Pycelle just passes on something Tyrion directly told him, that's one thing. But if Pycelle is breaking operational security, if he's reading the messages Tyrion gave him, then Pycelle can't be trusted on a whole other level.
0: Right. But, it's, but at the same time, though, it's, it's amusing here, and I did skip this over the synopsis, to be honest. Tyrion observes one blackbird flying away, so Pycelle sends one raven away to Dorne, probably, right? To keep up the pretense that he's doing as Tyrion bids. But, you know, as much as we're praising Tyrion's intelligence here versus Pycelle, which again is not, it's kind of a mountain versus a kind of a grain of sand sort of thing in terms of smarts going on, (laughs) what's going on here. But maybe Tyrion should have known that Pycelle immediately betrayed him by the fact that it was one bird instead of two. Like, I know this seems like a very minor point, but listen, here's the quote. Pycelle moved so slowly that Tyrion had time to finish his egg and taste the plums, overcooked and watery to his taste, before the sound of wings prompted him to rise. He spied the raven dark in the dawn sky. And remember, Tyrion had two copies of the letter and wanted two birds sent out. As he says, one letter and two copies. Send your swiftest birds. The matter is of great import. So for all of Tyrion's cunning, we get the small hint that Tyrion may not be the greatest player he imagines himself to be, Like he should immediately know that Pycelle betrayed him because he only sent one letter forward instead of sending the two letters forward that, Tyr- that Tyrion asked for. So at, at the same time, though, you do get the sense that you know, Tyrion wants to kind of sense out the rest of the small counselors and figure out they're betraying him too, but he should have been like, yeah, okay, Pycelle is obviously the, the, the one of the traitors in the court. One of them, just one of them.
1: I love that George has just a, a, detail he can include in just for our benefit, not even Tyrion's. That's how many details he's packed into this chapter he can afford just to give us one. And that is, yeah, that is a wonderful little touch that shows Picel is, is rotten to the core. So before we transition from uh, Picel to Littlefinger, the next in the, in the, in the one, two, three conga line, we get this little power walk with Braun. And before Braun brings Tyrion up to speed, before Braun brings Tyrion up to speed, we get this, uh, little comic moment with, uh, Bronn Braun choosing to watch the sword play among the men training rather than hit on the ladies walking past. And, you know, Tyrion <laughs> makes fun of him for it. And Braun talks about like, you know, I can get, I can get laid anywhere, but I gotta focus on these guys because they might kill me. And there's, there's an interesting contrast there that comes up a lot, not just in the Song of Ice and Fire, but all across, you know, all across literature, all across art. This contrast of the needs of war with the flesh-bound needs of the individual. Stan is going to war versus Renly's peach. You know what I mean? Like, Jor, Jorah's peach versus the situation he's in now with <laughs> Danny. Or even the contrast between, between the food that Picel and Tyrion are talking about, like the needs of the now, the needs of sating your, your beastly belly versus the long-term needs of the war. And in this case, Braun knows where his bread is buttered. Uh, you know, a younger Braun might have just gone after the ladies because he didn't have to care about focusing on those men because he wasn't in an institutional position to care. But now he is. Now this is his job. So he's a different man. And I love that Tyrion points out, hey, these guys are on our side. Like, you're not going to have to fight <laughs> them. And you can just imagine Bronn smirking, like, sure, they're on our side today. Today, yep. But we're in a civil war. And he seems to understand more than Tyrion that, yeah, he could easily end up on the other side of the war from them. Just look at what's going on with Renly and Stannis right now. It, these things move so quickly, you don't necessarily know. And so you get this little, uh, this little walk and talk meeting with Tyrion, this little west walk, this little, uh, this little west wing walk and talk, or, you know. Pick a a show with politics less obnoxious, but that kind of, you know, sharp back and forth dynamic. And it gets what we've talked about before. The Clash of Kings is not only about power, but about different conceptions of power and how they compete, both in-universe and for our attention as readers. So you get these, these, again, comic interludes about, like, marriage prospects for Tyrion, but they exist alongside reports of starvation inside the city and war crimes outside it. And the point is that for Tyrion and Bronn, there's no difference. Mm -hmm. For they are just talking about this in a neutral tone, all our items on the agenda with no moral valence, which, you know, I've uh, interned a little bit on Capitol Hill and for some other big institutions, and yeah, this is how people talk, and it's kind of chilling after a while. Like, George makes you understand why Tyrion has adopted this mindset, but without necessarily excusing it. He takes you through the logic of the decision-making while also making you aware of the callousness of many of these decisions. Like, Tyrion's response to his father's string of atrocities in the Riverlands... I believe they call that war. <laughs> what an obnoxious thing to say. First of all, for someone who's not experiencing any of it, and someone who's getting food brought into him in the city that's starving all around him. But also just completely blithely ignoring how Tywin has deliberately ramped up the terror and ramped up the atrocities in the Riverlands. And this is the same mindset that led Tyrion to casually plan on reducing the Vale to a smoking wasteland to work out his private vendetta with the errands. He really... Really has no concern about the people starving, <laughs> nor about the, the mobs forming in the city outside, you know, trying to work out brutal justice on those withholding food from them. You know, th- there is always a short-term, crude Machiavellian logic to Tyrion's moves here. He can explain to us that, yes, compliant river lords have their uses. Yes, Littlefinger can deal with these creditors better than Joffrey. Yes, feeding the mob today might guarantee a bigger one tomorrow, and so on and so forth. He's not just, like, Joffrey just, like, doing things for sadistic fun— But every step along the way, George is pointing out that the long-term effects of this way of approaching politics and and none of these long-term effects are good. Starvation gets worse. The gold cloaks are joining the mob, which is a very fateful detail we get in this chapter. Everything is falling apart. And Joffrey being a loose cannon who always has to be managed is bad news in the long run, even if you can manage him in the short run. And just so George wants you to get this, that even though Tyrion's, you know, methods are effective in the short term but not in the long term, just in case you haven't understood it, at the end of the scene, Tyrion brushes off word of the apocalypse because he doesn't like the messenger, because he doesn't like Alice or Thorne, and for the want of a nail, the whole world turned to ice.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really fascinating point because, you know... Talking about the River Lord, you never get the sense that Tyrion feels like a twinge of sympathy or a twinge of guilt over what his family is doing. It's simply encased in terms as this is just war. This is what happens in war, right? This is just the natural progression of war. But no, no, that's actually not how war is supposed to be fought, both in this universe as well as in the real world, as we talked about back in Tyrion time. You know, Tyrion's Tywinesque Machiavellianism, as you point out, as his moral center here in Clash... It works as terrific foreshadowing for what Tyrion will become in A Dance with Dragons, and likely into The Winds of Winter, too. There's no Machiavellian, quote, greater good dynamic in work in Tyrion's Syvas game with young Griff, where he manipulates the boy to invade Westeros without Daenerys or dragons aboard the Shy Maid. Instead, like, you know, you've written this really, really well. You know, Tyrion is playing young Griff for nihilistic kicks, enjoying the game for its own sake. Kind of like Littlefinger does, as we're going to find out at the end of this chapter. It's a Littlefingering move, as, you know, again, you and other folks like Adam Feldman have pointed out in your various essays. You know, one of my appreciations for A Clash of Kings is noticing George working at the margins of Tyrion's story to make his villainous turn more palatable and more believable and this is how good character twists work, you know It makes a sympathetic character have little wrinkles just teeny tiny little things in their outlook They you kind of side-eye for the moment But you, you push it aside right because Tyrion is the protagonist in the clash of kings We're all rooting for Tyrion. We don't want Tyrion to die right 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 maybe 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 not anymore But it's all set up for the future dark term George has in mind for Tyrion in dance and as George said in 1999 so we've quoted a couple times now Tyrion well, he's the villain after all and when did he say this? Again, 1999, right around the time after A Clash of Kings was published. So this is very early in George's conception of Tyrion Lannister, and it helps to kind of set us in this mode that we think that, you know, is kind of a bad guy and supporting a bad cause. Not just that he's supporting a bad cause, but he's rationalizing evil actions as war, as politics. When I guess it is in one sense, but it's the immoral evil kind of war and politics.
1: It's the antagonist inside the protagonist, and George does such a good job of suggesting both. Because, yeah, we're comparing Tyrion constantly to Cersei and Joffrey, and even Tywin. And he does come off relatively good compared to them. And a lot of his sins, when you come back to a chapter like this, are mostly sins of omission. Ones you might not necessarily catch on first read. The lack of sentiment, the lack of emotion, the lack of concern. Callousness is harder to pick up on than obvious, Mm -hmm. like, you know, jaw dripping with blood sadism, right? But you come back on reread, knowing where Tyrion's going, and it really stands out. And that is a testament to the strength of George's writing, of the the patience he had with Tyrion, taking his time and building that character arc. But speaking of petty personal ego, swamping all of the concerns, here's <laughs> Cersei. Cersei just kind of shows up for a little bit in this chapter. She's not as involved in what's happening as she will be in the next few Tyrion chapters in Clash. But we still get that great Tyrion-Cersei dialogue I've talked about before, where they just immediately piss each other off and start poking at old wounds. And that's not to say that at an institutional level they would ever be allies. As Tyrion notes, Cersei was never going to be happy about how he handled Janos Slint, <laughs> But that they are constantly at each other's throats when they don't need to be is bad for the Lannister cause in general. Even if it wasn't Cersei who ordered Tyrion at, killed at the Blackwater, although I, I you'd half think it was. And I <laughs> and I can't exactly say that Tywin makes it any better when he shows up to crack heads together in a storm of swords. I do like the pattern in A Clash of Kings of Cersei... Uh, constantly being a step behind Tyrion in terms of intelligence gathering. Like, there's this constant where, like, Tyrion will do something, or learn something, and then Cersei will turn up, like, waving her finger about it, and reacting to it a chapter or two later. And this produces comic moments, like Cersei telling Tyrion that she's more concerned about the defenses than him, which is just laughable (laughs) on reread when we know what that chain is for, and that Cersei, if anything, sabotaged the defenses repeatedly while Tyrion saved the city. Now, to give Cersei some credit, because Cersei does have a couple of good moves, she is right that taking the red wine hostage, the red wines hostage was a significant contribution to the Lannister cause. There was a whole, another AU where the, the red wines were in with Renly from the start, where it's a completely different ballgame. But, as Tyrion also notes, Loras Tyrell really was the bigger fish to fry there in terms of keeping the reach out the war. And everywhere else he's on a deeper level than Cersei. He knows why it's dumb to bring Tywin's army to King's Landing, as he says, that would serve no purpose but to make you feel better. He understands Renly's strategy, he explains it very cogently, more than Renly bothers to himself. And he also knows why Stannis is more of a threat in spite of (laughs) Renly's strategy, because the problem with Renly's strategy is it allows other people to reshape the board. That's why he has to react to Stannis showing up at Storm's End, leaving his his infantry in the dust. And that, that's the, the hold he leaves open. And Tyrion, of course, doesn't know what Stannis is going to do, but he understands, oh, Stannis has a move yet to make, and he's cunning, so that move might be a big one. And i got to keep my eye on that, and Renly's going to take his time. Again, Martin is immersing us in his understanding of the politics of his entire fictional world through the lens of Tyrion and what Tyrion makes of all of this
0: yeah you, you make a great point like he is immersing us in that and he's also i, I want to say he's he's doing a good job also of again expanding out the world in such a way and starting to kind of move different threads together so one of the things I think is interesting about this chapter and the fact of the Red Wine Fleet, the Red Wine Fleet is going to be like this major thing in a Storm of Swords, and then a Feast for Crows, and then the Winds of Winter, where they're kind of going back and forth across Westeros. Right, they're sailing around the the Dorne to get up to besiege Dragonstone, then they sail immediately right back down to Dorne when they learn when they actually take Dragonstone and Euron is upsetting things. Let's say slightly upsetting things in the Reach. Here we're also seeing George doing the same thing here, where we have the Red Wine Fleet being staying back of the Arbor and not moving to assist with the Lannister regime at Westeros. And this allows Stannis to move his fleet and invade Storm's End. And then later they're going to come up after the Red Wines join, after the Tyrells rather join with the Lannister cause. And then we have you know, then moving back back down south again after Euron shows up in, in A Feast for Crows. So these these are all, like, you're starting to see, like, George kind of expanding the plot as well as making it more complex and complicated. And, then you know, the Red Flea is a very minor thing in the grand scale of things, but it becomes much more major later on in the story. I also think it's, it's really interesting, too. You bring up this point about Cersei being a step behind Tyrion. This is something that, you know, you kind of get the sense maybe that Varys is telling Tyrion things first and letting him understand what's going on before he tells Cersei because he wants to be like, okay, here, I'm going to tell the one guy that I'm really working with here, really working hard to try and make him a part of our little uh, young griff plot later on in The Dance with Dragons, but at the same time, like he does have to tell Cersei too, and that's all working together to make a really interesting plot point where you have Varys kind of playing both sides and maybe possibly doing some other things on the side as well as we'll get to later in a clash of kings
1: that's a good point I hadn't I hadn't considered that's a good point obviously I think Tyrion is is a little more cunning than Cersei in general but yeah Varys is also privileging him with information and Tyrion is taking full advantage of that but before we get to Varys of course we get to Littlefinger who is is introduced in this chapter in just the most over-the-top villainous fashion (laughs) imaginable just leaning back with his plum doublet on his in his yellow cape Sitting back to watch the, the king kill animals for fun—it isn't that just Joffrey in a nutshell, by the way. It, it's it's pointless bloodletting, and he's not even good at it. He's not even effective at it in like a Magor sort of way. He almost castrates one of his own Kingsguard in this scene, which I had forgotten. And as with Tyrion's jarring lack of concern for the hellscape we've seen up close in Arya's last chapter. This is meant to frame the politicking, right? Let's give it a context. Even as George draws us into the details of Tyrion's plans with Littlefinger, he never wants us to forget the king it's all supporting. If you think about it in terms of like a shot in a movie, you'd have like Tyrion and Littlefinger like, you know, in the center of the frame in the foreground. You can imagine like Joffrey shooting crossbow bolts just out of of focus (laughs) in the background. But so you always know it's there. So you always remember it's happening. That's what's going on here. And Littlefinger's response to that is the most Littlefinger thing ever. Invest in pots, Pod. Monetize the rot. Always be closing, even as Rome burns. Castles are for winners. And Littlefinger, of course, is someone who always thinks through the double implications of his words like that. There's always something under the surface. That's why you get the hilarious moment in this scene when Tyrion says he's going to give Lysa Jon Arryn's true killer. And Littlefinger's response is, True killer... I confess, you make me curious. <laughs> what a word choice on his part and George's part to sneak a little confession in into his obfuscation. So this opening statement of ideology, invest in pots. This is his shot across Tyrion's bow, right? This is him saying, this is how I think. This is my, his way of differentiating himself from someone like Pycelle. I am not to be trifled with. And Tyrion knows that even as he goes on to manipulate Littlefinger. After all, this is this is personal, not just business. Tyrion knows that Littlefinger framed him, and Littlefinger knows that Tyrion knows, and as Tyrion points out, Littlefinger is not concerned about that in the slightest. And part of that is just the thrill that Littlefinger gets from courting Disaster. Part of it is also, to be honest, George's thumb on the scale keeping Tyrion from executing Littlefinger, because George needs Littlefinger to stay around for plot, but... it is also grounded in the material realities of government in King's Landing, in which Littlefinger has invested so much, literally and otherwise, over the years. To come back to the comparison to brand two, this is Littlefinger playing the Wyman Manderley role, right? He's the modern financial thinker out to vertically integrate the state. The crown's money will not simply sit in the vault like a dragon's hoard. No, you gotta, the crown must become a, a lender, a speculator, a landlord, a central cog in all the industries, a thumb in every pie. And this is indeed how a federal state can evolve into uh, a federal, uh, federal state. This is indeed how a feudal <laughs> state can evolve into an early modern one. And th- the problem is that Littlefinger is going considerably farther than Wyman's benign patriotic profiteering. Littlefinger is rigging the entire government to explode. Nothing in his books is reliable, as Tyrion learns in the Storm of Swords, because all the people who would tell on him owe him their jobs. And knowing him, they probably owe him their lives. Mm-hmm. Wyman wants to help his new kingdom grow and become secure. Littlefinger wants to be able to cripple the central government at will on behalf of his new patron, which by the time of *Wins a Winner* is shaping up to be Queen Sansa of North and Vale. As we said before, it's it's this kind of like gruesome, cynical take on rags to riches story in fantasies, like you know the the, the scrappy, intelligent lower class kid working his way to the top, but he has no aim beyond destruction and jealous possession.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny, right? I mean, like this is our primary source on little, what Littlefinger was doing after he was expelled from. River run, which we find out from Catelyn's sixth chapter from A Game of Thrones. And, it, and that kind of brings up something, though, even though we know a little bit about what happens, there, there is a gap in our knowledge. There's a gap in terms of what Littlefinger was doing between seven years, 282 and 289 AC. We only know during that time two things. One, that Littlefinger went back to the Fingers after Tully dismissed him, and we know that he wrote Catelyn a letter at some point in between those years that she later burned. But we really have no idea what else was going on. But then suddenly he reappears in 289 when Lysa entreats on John Aaron to appoint him as the customs officer in Gulltown. And then he turns out to be in a surprise economic prodigy. What, what was he doing at, for those seven years, right? What There's there's nothing in his background or his backstory that we learn from his fostering and, and river run that leads us to say, like, yeah, this guy is definitely going to be this financial genius who's able to manipulate the markets, manipulate the government, and manipulate the treasury in such a way as to bring ruin to all of King's Landing and all of Westeros as a whole. My theory. So I have a theory about this. I, driven, of course, because all theories, and this is something that's, uh, was brought up in a, in a recent Storm of Swords podcast about theories about lost. All theories should point to a character reason or a character motivation, like a, a, an idea of a hypothesis should have a character state when it comes to narrative fiction. So my theory, I think driven by his burning hatred of Hostetali and the nobility, he makes a grand study of the nobility and determines that the nobles are shit at finance. Then he finds people who are talented in these areas and puts them into positions of power, making them his allies using monetary corruption as his leverage point. We get this quote from the chapter. They were men of middling birth by and large, merchant sons, lesser lordlings, sometimes even foreigners, but judging from their results, far more able than their highborn predecessors. You know, I I do wonder kind of whether these men are aware that they are co-conspirators with Littlefinger's plan to bring down Westeros, crashing on the nobles. Or are they kind of like, you know, the mafia from The Dark Knight, which is the only movie that millennials know these days. <laughs> Guys who are just interested in enriching themselves off a rotten system who don't realizing who or what they're getting into bed with. So that's kind of like my general hypothesis. We got seven years where Littlefinger just educates the shit out of himself. You know, as we were saying in pre-production, it's kind of like seven years. You got your four years of undergrad, you got your three years for your master's degree. Littlefinger at that point is a master of finance. He's a master of manipulation. He's a master of utilizing of putting people in the best positions that he can get his own ends at. So he puts himself high and above these nobles, and yet at the same time he's you know, he's making himself to be a friend to everyone. As George said, you know, Littlefinger is the most different character from the books to the show because, you know, in the in the books, Littlefinger is the friend to everyone. But at the same time, is he really the friend to everyone? If he's a friend to everyone, he might be a friend to no one.
1: Precisely. And even the people he's not a friend to He's made sure along the way to make himself indispensable to them. He is indispensable to his current patrons by... A, being the only one to understand finance... And B, presenting himself as unthreatening, as lower-class, disreputable... The kind of guy who would know about finance. And by the time someone with a more jaundiced eye about that sort of thing than Cersei or Tywin comes along... It's too late to do anything about it. Especially with a war on. A war Littlefinger helped instigate, because Mm -hmm. the war protects him. The war ensures that Tyrion thinks, oh, I can't, I don't have the time... To like you know completely root him out and reshape the entire government structure of King's Landing because a, a Baratheon army is about to land on the doorstep. I just can't do it. All of which goes to explain why Tyrion feels he cannot touch him. Instead, he hopes to make use of him. But he knows that Littlefinger is not going to be a pushover like Pycelle, and this is where we find Tyrion as a more adept politician than Ned because Ned pretty much just has the one strategy, and I admire it, and I think it's more effective than people <laughs> give him credit for. And I think he was mostly brought down by. Combination of bad luck and timing and lots of factors, as we discussed in our coverage of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. But what Tyrion has all over net is his multiplicity of strategies and his ability to shift his strategy to meet a new target. Where Tyrion cut Pysell off, he spars with Littlefinger back and forth. Where Tyrion's mind wandered while Pysell blathered, he runs over Littlefinger's dossier constantly in his mind because he knows that's who he's dealing with here. It's, it's it's much more one-on-one. And that is how he's able to zero in on Lysa and Harrenhal as the keys to Littlefinger's compliance. And I love how much time George takes to describe Tyrion's awareness of Littlefinger's ticks. Like, Tyrion just takes such pleasure in watching it play <laughs> across Littlefinger's face. Littlefinger... Realizes what he could have and it realizes oh, I'm giving away my desire for it and then goes "Eh, I can't help myself Like all that (laughs) plays across Littlefinger's face and what's clearly like less than a second But Tyrion takes it all in and it helps that they they have something in common these two and both That is that both of them are just extremely cynical like, neither one is considering Lysa as a person. Both are just lying throughout this conversation about what they've done and what they're intending to do. And I lo- everyone loves that part where Tyrion just feigns distress about his own guerrilla activities. <laughs> but it's also chilling, like that's a real world government thing. Like two powerful mm-hmm. people talking about the, the guerrilla movements they are inspiring and are disavowing and are like pretending to cover up and deal with. You, you're know, you kidding yourself if we think our our state isn't doing that kind of thing all the time. But again, the difference is that Tyrion and Littlefinger, not the difference, the important thing is that Tyrion (laughs) and Littlefinger are talking very shallowly about it and are not taking it seriously. We have moved on from Pycelle's false pieties, the the pretense of taking it seriously, to a showdown of pure snark between these two. And that's what makes it fun, but also, I think, depressing.
0: Yeah, it is very depressing when you have these guys being like, oh, well, you know... Sucks for Lysa that she has to have all of these mountain clansmen killing the shit out of the veil. That's that's so terrible. It's not, but I arm them, of course, as Tyrion thinks. Um I also think it's interesting too in this this section how we see the mask kind of drop a little bit for Littlefinger. we you you mentioned his his like facial tics. He's like picking up like Tyrion's picking up on things. Like we're seeing Littlefinger's Imagine Endgame kind of springing to his mind It's like, ah, well, I don't actually have to do all of these things that I planned in the long term because I could just get Harrenhal given to me for doing this one little thing, and you know, there's there's a sense that you know these guys are operating as peers. You know, I think like a lot of people have this idea that Littlefinger is some sort of master player in the Game of Thrones, and yes, he is very good at it. But as Tyrion is going, it makes clear in this section of the chapter. You know, he's not perfect at the game. He is letting himself be seen by Tyrion. And Tyrion is, by seeing these things in Littlefinger, is able to kind of pick out what is working, what isn't working in terms of his manipulation of him. And that's That's fun, I guess, for me to have Littlefinger kind of get his kind of like kind of chopped off at the knees. It's fun. It's fun. I'm just saying it's fun. But it's, you know, that also then takes us to our next section. So we have the parody with Littlefinger. What happens when the third counselor shows up in the in the small council chambers with Tyrion?
1: Yes. And now we arrive at the top of the mountain, the greatest player of them all, Varus the Spider. And with Varus, we see Tyrion once more shifting his strategy, like he's just sitting and waiting for Varus, knowing that Varus will come to him, which speaks so much to how he's playing Varus. Like he bowled over Pycelle, right? He's sparred on even terms with Littlefinger, but he's waiting for Varus, he's going blank for Varus. Like if you imagine, like you know, someone said this and I forget who, but like the core act of politics is just trying to be able to read someone's mind. And that mm-hmm. the reason politics is so complex is because we can't. <laughs> like, that's what we have to build an entire political system around, is just being able to look at the other person in the room and go, what are you thinking? And so if you think about these three uh, showdowns between Tyrion and the Counselors as, as, as that made literal, like psychic duels while trying to read the other person's mind, Tyrion just bowls right over Pycelle and immediately reads his mind and knows what's going on and gets bored. Tyrion and Littlefinger are trying to read each other's mind and both are kind of semi-successful in bouncing back and forth. But with Varys, Tyrion knows that he's going up against someone who is better at mind reading than he is. Mm-hmm. So he puts his mind on blank. So he lets Varys in and let Varys fill him up with his own assumptions. And that's how Varys gets ahead of himself. He, Tyrion knows that Varys will already have spied out the offers he made via Pycelle and Littlefinger. And rather than coming up with a false story that Varys will see through, He allows Varus to reach his own false conclusion regarding Tommen. And this is so smart because it it uses Varus' primary advantage against him. And even with that deceit, there's a a certain candor here between Tyrion and Varus. More so with with Littlefinger and much more so than with Pycelle. (laughs) Many Tyrion chapters in Clash kind of have this structure where he starts with the, the mask intact and it gradually slips over the course of the chapter as he... He gets more frustrated and full of doubt and regret, like we saw with Braun in the Jano Slint chapter, where he gets more kind of into it as he gets here, and here he finally exposes his aim all along as the chapter ends. He wants to see who is more loyal to Cersei than to him. That's what this whole thing has been about. All the details were smokescreen and traps, all to get to that one idea, who was reporting to Cersei before me? And it, it's a brilliantly executed plan, and it, it's necessary, given how Cersei conducts herself politically, <laughs> as George helpfully reminds us in this chapter. But at the same time, I think you can come back on reread and see how Tyrion is setting himself up for failure here. Like Picel will remember this, and it will prompt his damning testimony at the trial. Littlefinger too will act with renewed vengeance to bring Tyrion down, and ironically he sets out to ensure over the rest of Clash and Storm that he gets Harrenhal, and he gets Lyce's hand, almost as a fuck you to Tyrion, like I'm gonna get the exact prizes you thought I would never have. And even Tyrion's genuine offer, the one to the Martells, smart as it is to reach out for allies in this moment, it opens up a huge can of worms for his family that we're still seeing unfold in the release chapters of the Winds of Winter. And again, it's all against the backdrop of Joffrey as a sadistic child king and the threat of the others going completely ignored. So you have, you have Tyrion as this great, you know, on the ground politician, this great guy who comes up with these, these strategies as to ha- how to handle these counselors. But every time you finish a Tyrion chapter in class, you're left with, the question of like, wait, what just actually happened though? Mm-hmm. Did he actually change things? Is the government better now, or do we just have like a fun scene? And I think that's deliberate. I think that's George showing us at the end of these chapters. Oh, Tyrion isn't delivering the justice he promised he would. Really,
0: right? I mean, you can look at you can look at my display name here on on the YouTube livecast, but it's brand Greater Than Sign Tyrion. So yeah, ultimately they they are fun chapters. They're they're a lot of fun. They're like dessert, right? As we were saying, they're they're. They're, they're, they're fun. I mean, I, I just have a lot of fun talking about Tyrion and talking about his manipulations of these different small counselors. But they don't ultimately satisfy. We're, we're seeing Tyrion in vaguer, a vaguer sense, even in his own chapter, even in isolation from knowing what's going to happen in Tyrion's arc come the end of a Clash of Kings, into Storm of Swords and into a Dance with Dragons. We can see the parameters for Tyrion going bad here. It, it's not, Tyrion isn't actually doing good in the long term. I think one of the interesting things that we have, we have this, like, really subtle conversation piece in this chapter at that ends this chapter where Varys and Tyrion are talking about Joffrey and talking about Tommen. And they're talking about how Joffrey is this manipulative sociopath that, you know, they kind of, Varys is like hinting, like, maybe we should get rid of him and put Tommen in his place. But it's not for the benefit of Westeros. It's not for the benefit of King's Landing. It's not even for the benefit of, I don't know, House Lannister as a whole. It's because he's more pliable, more tractable. He's able to be manipulated more by these power players in King's Landing, and that's ultimately where I come down to, like why I think the Bran's chapters are better than than Tyrion's chapters, because there's there's a bit of. It's, it's filling. It's fulfilling in terms of how Brand is operating and how the people that are coming to Brand with petitions and different ideas that they want to do in the new ki- kingdom in the North, how they want to actually operate. And yes, they are, you know, they're hard elbows. They're attempting to use their position to advance their own house and their own cities, their own castles' interests. But at the same time, they're ultimately Northern patriots, as, you know, you pointed out before earlier in this podcast. And it being patriotic for the North, they're, they're more enjoyable to like kind of like think about and analyze and opposed to these all shells of human beings that are manipulating uh, the political uh, uh. process to fuck Westeros over in the terms of Littlefinger and Varys. I mean Varys might self-delude himself to say that he's not. He's in it for the good of the realm and for the children but ultimately what he's doing is bringing more disaster, more death, and more destruction. Same as Tyrion
1: too. Well said, sir. And I think that uh, just about wraps us up for the chapter content itself of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 4. when you take us away to foreshadowing and groundwork, sir? Absolutely. So
0: in this chapter, we've got Tyrion slipping a little teeny tiny little vial up his sleeve as Pycelle's is off uh, betraying him with the uh, one sending the one bird to Dorm. And Tyrion is going to use that poison that he steals from Pycelle just a couple chapters from now. And it will come up again at his trial in a storm of swords as Pycelle will testify that Tyrion has robbed him of his, of his, of his medicines. And Tyrion's plot in King's Landing, it seems pretty well plotted out from the start of A Clash of Kings. You get the sense that George has some very clear ideas of where he's going. We're past a little bit beyond the gardening stage and more into the architectural stage, and that he is very much has a very clear set sense of ideas of where he's going to go in this chapter and where he's going to go in Tyrion's arc in A Clash of Kings.
1: Well put. I think the garden versus architectural contrast is a great one for these Tyrion chapters because he does seem to have a very firm hand on the details here, like the the lack of food coming into King's Landing. That's something we constantly see in these these Tyrion and Sansa chapters early on in Clash, and that pays off in a big way with the bread riots in Tyrion Nine. And that's important to have there, not just for nerdy details so we can go back and point it out and feel (laughs) clever about ourselves. That's just a side benefit. But, I mean, the main reason is so it feels, you know, it feels organic. It feels like a real city boiling over when it happens in Tyrion Nine, And that's crucial to the excitement of that scene. It doesn't just feel like the author hit the the Riot Now button. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Right. I
0: mean, like, you have, like, the seeds of the riot just germinating from... Various events, you, we learn from Tyrion three that the, the Stokeworks and the Rosbys are the only two houses that are sending food to King's Landing, and they're small houses. Everything else is basically cut off. You've got a worsening food situation. You've got this idea that we've got a teeny tiny little murder of a baker who may have possibly been putting sawdust into the bread, and the gold cloaks are joining in. You're like, huh, so what, are, what is this all building to, George? What is it all building to? Well, it's building to a massive fucking riot that's going to all, almost overthrow Joffrey before Stannis and or Renly can even arrive in King's Landing.
1: Absolutely, it's it's going to be a it's really interesting to see how the starvation of King's Landing and, and the the mood of the small folk pays off with the, with a the spare movement. But that I'm getting ahead of myself with <laughs> getting to a feast for crows.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of a feast for crows, we also see the Stokeworth plot is going to crop up again here. We sh- it shows up here with the fate of again poor Lalas, who is. Um, probably the, one of the biggest victims from the riot in King's Landing, which, and that then that used to motivate Braun during Tyrion's trial and throughout a feast for crows, where they utilize lollies as, you know, you can marry, you know, Braun, possibly, rather, they're going to utilize Braun as 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 a means of marrying lollies, marrying to marry into the noble class. And along kind of the same foreshadowing line, we get this line from uh, from Tyrion, which I kind of glossed over in the, in the synopsis, which is Tyrion says to Bronn, perhaps you should eat the goose and marry the maid, the maid, of course, being lollies. And so a uh, question for you. Do you think that George had this idea that Bronn would marry lollies in mind when he wrote A Clash of Kings?
1: It's possible. I mean, Bronn's uh, social climbing is such a constant in Clash and Storm. And the the Stokeworth marriage plot is left dangling, especially after the riot, so maybe. I'm curious if he always planned for it to be handled off-screen the way it ended up being in Feast for Crows. Maybe he intended to have a closer look at it at some point. That's an interesting question to 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 pose to George at some point down the line. But speaking of stuff being set up for a feast for crows, <laughs> there's just so much set up in this chapter. It's one of those again, like Brand 2, where there's just tons of foreshadowing going on. We get this mention of bravosi moneylenders starting to sniff around King's Landing and demand payments on Robert's loans, and that's going to return with a vengeance in Cersei's chapters in the Feast for Crows. But of course, it's not the Iron Bank doing it yet because the Iron Bank doesn't exist in George's mind. These are just bravosi <laughs> moneylenders. In case again, where he, you know, you sometimes if you don't have an exact. Uh, arc in mind for an institution or part of the setting, start generic, right? Start mm-hmm. mysterious. Start with just Bravo you moneylenders and give yourself room to grow. And if George never wanted to do anything with that, you know, part of the plot line ever again, he, he never committed anything to it. Unlike, say, those, those, uh, sell swords who just vanish in between book one and two, where he kind of committed himself and then forgot. This is, this is, I think, a smarter move of hedging your bets.
0: Yeah, I agree there. It allows for George to build this plot up in later in the Feast for Crows, which is which is a great subplot that we get with Cersei expelling Tycho Nestoris, and then mm-hmm. Tycho showing up with Status being like, Fine, fuck you, I'm gonna go with back Stannis and the Iron Bank is pro stannis going for one four because he's the one who's actually going to pay the debts back to us, as we find out at the end of a Dance of Dragons, starting into Theon's Winds Winner Sample chapters. Finally, in terms of foreshadowing and grammar, we have Sir Talad. Do you guys remember him? No? No, oh, that's it's okay, don't worry about it. So Talon is one of those other elements that George is planning here and kind of makes use of later on. You know, he's he's going to escort Shay to the trial, and then he's going to be one of those accused of being Marjorie Tyrell's lovers in a Feast for Crows. Like basically, this is in the same way that Brand Two was foreshadowing for events from a Dance of Dragons, Tyrion 4 is foreshadowing for events for a Feast for Crows, primarily. This is what this entire chapter is all about. Basically a Feast for Crows.
1: Yes, you can see George plotting out not just Tyrion's arc, but a lot of events in King's Landing going for the next couple books. And not even just plotting them out, but introducing elements that he will later draw from, as we're saying. Certainly, Sir Talad is a minor character. George definitely (laughs) doesn't have those things in mind. But he's just of a cast of characters, and George restrains himself from just inventing new ones every time. He goes back, it's like, who have I mentioned before? Who's a minor character that I can mention again that'll make this universe feel feel lived in on reread? And so, yeah, especially uh, Marjorie's quote-unquote suitors in the Feast for Crows feel just like... Uh, just a complete list of all the minor characters in King's Landing Jalabarzo is there and the Red Wine Twins it's like everyone who's just been flooding around the background gets ca- gets called in because that's, that's you know that's your use of your tertiary characters they don't have to do anything but which when you need a group of people for an event they're there for when you need them and George yeah, I think Georgia knows how to handle that sort of thing
0: he absolutely does so I think about wraps this up for our foreshadowing grommet portion of this chapter to kind of walk us into our kind of larger discussion piece, I I figure we, I would start with a very bold bold statement because I'm very very brave as people as everyone says, and which I'm going to say that you know this scene in the show is better than as portrayed here in Tyrion Four. Did I blow your mind?
1: Oh yes, right shock. I'm supposed to perform shock and surprise when Jeff does his opinions, right? Oh, Lordy, <laughs> Lou, <laughs> by Megatron. Uh, no, I think. <laughs> This is a great example of the strengths of different media. It's, it's a, a nice positive note to talk about in terms of the relationship between uh, the book and the show, because that's obviously a, a contentious topic these days, <laughs> even more so than before the ending of Season 8. So, you know, to, to get everyone together and sing Kumbaya, these are just two two great scenes. Like, this, the scene on the show is so, like, bone-dry and brutally effective, and it's, it's a great example of of editing. In the same way that the, putting Brand 2 and Tyrion 4 together side by side is a great example of a very different kind of editing. There's um what do you call it in comics I think it's called it's gutters or, or you refer to like the space in between panels like you know the white space and you know the space of implication and plot events happen there and things happen off screen and character emotions happen. And George has always been very good in the gutters. always been very good at creating meaning out of <laughs> out of putting two chapters together. It's something we've talked about before and we'll talk about a lot going forward. And that's that's something you see in the show, too, is is the power of editing and the power mm-hmm. of, of putting two images together. You know, this goes back to the, the primary idea of the, of the Kuleshov effect in filmmaking, the idea that editing is cinema, that putting two images together is what makes meaning more than any one image. And you see that in the one, two, three scene in the show so perfectly, just cutting in the same room from Tyrion's conversation, boom, 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 little Pycelle, Littlefinger Varus. And by necessity, what you lose is what makes this chapter special, which is the sprawl. The right. details, the endless lists. I've been now rereading uh, the greatest novel of all time, Gravity's Rainbow, and one of the things that makes it so special are just the endless lists and endless details. And that's is super relevant for a book that's all about like the the horrible, great invisible systems that control our lives. And so that's that's a lot of what George is getting at in the Song of Ice and Fire too. So it, it's appropriate you have all those details and you can get lost in them and bounce back and forth. But this is one case I think where the show wasn't correcting a mistake, but just just cleaning it up into a, a perfect visual format. And I, I just think it's great
0: right and you know props to uh, Catherine Chappelle who uh, was the editor for this scene from from Game of Thrones season 2 she actually uh, passed away just a few years ago I think you know the other thing too. that I think is makes the show a bit better is the way they've kind of frame it. Like it, it's it's a bit confusing. Like I had to read it a couple of times to kind of refresh my mind. You know, having read the books a couple of times now and being a reputed as Song of Ice and Fire expert as everyone says. You know, right. But at the same, but you know, and the show is very much cleaned up and very easy to understand. And I love some of the acting that's done too with Conleth Hill when they say when they're like um, when Tyrion's like I plan to marry Marcella to Theon Greyjoy and Var is just like dead pants, like. Beyond gray joy,
1: just, really, my lord. That just makes no sense. I love Conleth Hill in that scene. He's just playing it. Every every word is just beautiful.
0: Right, and then uh, the other thing I love too is the way they use the uh, the pillar in the in the scene from the show. Yes, you can look at us on YouTube where yes. Tyrion walks across. Pan, the, he walks across from left to right on the screen, saying something, and then he walks back across. And the pan, a shot of Tyrion, and then another shot immediately of the person who you weren't expecting to see because he was just interacting with. Pycelle with Varas and then you show up and you turn around and there's Littlefinger there and you're like, Littlefinger's like, and I'm not supposed to tell the Queen what. And it's it's done really, really, really well. So we, we, we've we got numerous criticisms of the Game of Thrones TV show. I think, you know, I, I appreciate the <laughs> show more than anything for bringing me to A Song of Ice and Fire. But of course. But, but it's, a, you know, the, at least the first couple seasons they did mostly a really excellent job of adapting this work and that's something that we kind of do need to praise the show is in terms of its adaptation powers, the way that it does the hard work of taking something that George once described as impossible to translate to television, to, to a movie, and making it palatable and making it interesting for us as people to watch. And that's good. I think it's good on the show's part.
1: And one thing I think that really makes this scene great, and one thing you highlighted talking about just the pillar and the way it works is that it's a scene that was clearly shot with the editing in mind. Mm. And that is something that I think defines a lot of great TVs and movies and differentiates them from a lot of, you know, mediocre to bad TVs and movies. Is there's there's so many TV shows and big-budget movies where it's clearly just like, shoot whatever material we have, we will cobble it together in editing. And you can do that if you're like, you know, if your editor is like Thelma Schoonmaker who shoots all sure. of Scorsese's movies, and she's a genius. And if you're that good, or like the the, the woman who edited Pulp Fiction, whose name escapes me at the moment... If you're if you're that good at editing, you can cobble together a story out of that. But most people are not, and right. so I think a, a lot of what makes an effective showrunner is you have the second level of your mind going, "What's it going to look like in the editing suite?" And that was clearly a shot with like every like, "Okay, Peter, going to turn right here when you say mm-hmm. this line, because then we're going to edit it right here." And that was just like every every wheel was turning, everyone was every element was in on the, this exact event that was going to happen and that kind of snapping together and that precision is what made Game of Thrones at its best really great and when the, even my favorite moments of the later seasons did feel more like, let's shoot everything yep. and let's edit it together afterwards and see what we can come up with. Yeah, they blocked the shit out of that scene when they yes. did a
0: fantastic job of doing that and so props to Game of Thrones. Here's us praising the throne show after, after all these years down the road. I do remember this, that being those scenes with Tyrion... And Varys and Littlefinger and Pycelle being among my favorites when I was watching season two before I even read the book. So props right. to the throne show. We have a lot of fun doing that.
1: Yeah, It's because, I mean, this is the kind of the scene you, you salivate to shoot if you want to make The Wire and right. not if you want to make Lord of the Rings. Like that's the right. I think that's the crucial difference. And yeah, I think a lot of times the show felt a little more comfortable in the former domain. And I think I think a lot of people feel that way, too, when they read that Tyrion's chapters are a kind of groove you get into. And a lot of the other series, the rest of the series doesn't necessarily work like this, but the, this particular tone and structure really is just brilliant. And it's a pleasure to come back and still a pleasure to watch those scenes from season two.
0: Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 4. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, everywhere and anywhere where you find our podcasts.
1: Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash not A S O I A F or follow us on Twitter at not A S O I A F. Email us at natacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish
0: on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of
1: We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Neribald the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers to of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Hall. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, what did the Five fingers say to the face Penrose, Lady Dilsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, and our newest High Lord, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. So thank you very much to our High Lords and ladies, and welcome, Warden Matt.
0: Yeah, thank you guys so much for your support, and again, welcome to Matt. And thank you, and keep the keep the sanguine short, nice and Warden. I don't know if that's a word or not. Doesn't
1: matter. Yeah, I called him Warden Matt. It's like, oh, that sounds like he's in charge of prison. That's not great. <laughs> he's like he's like a Warden. Like the I want to redo that. that. Yeah, that's okay. We'll we'll figure it out.
0: This will be this will be your your Mulligan. Remember, I had that Mulligan with the cannoli, <laughs> Master of Cannoli, whatever. That exactly. Guy was in, in small Council. Yeah. So join us next week as we stay right here in King's Landing for, for Clash of Kings Sansa 2 in which two drunk not-knights take out their issues on Sansa. Oh, Emmett. I mean, are, these, are these men ever going to, like,
1: grow up? It's great with both Dantos and Sandor. Sandor especially where Sandor just says the thing where, like, he talks about his backstory for a few paragraphs and Sansa goes, okay, so when Sandor goes, I'm not done. <laughs> Let me talk more about how my trauma kind of relates to your trauma but I can't deal with it. Fuck me, I'm drunk. Um, it's, it's a short chapter but a really depthful chapter and really great thematically for Saints' story and the way uh, Dantor, Dantos and Sandor bounce off each other and are similar and not is, is a really interesting topic to me
0: it is a really interesting topic and it's going to provide a lot of fertile ground for lots of future plot points in Clash and A Storm of Swords and uh, The Wind's a Winner probably as well so thank you guys so much for listening thank you guys for watching those who are watching on our livecast and we will see you guys next week